Welcome to episode 12 of Ben and Clayton Eat the Bible. We have a lot to talk about today, so we're going to just dive right in. First, before we get to that, I actually have a correction or a emendation to issue on some of my own comments from last episode. Ooh. The unclean state described in numbers, and you had asked me, like, how does the, how does that translate to Christian life today? And we talked about, you know, basically that Jesus makes his people clean in a, in a permanent way that wasn't available to the ancient Israelites. And while the clean, unclean, I think those things still exist, like sin is still unclean, mortality still makes things unclean, like Jesus's resurrection power and the presence of the Holy Spirit changes the dynamic there to where we don't have to be infected by sin or death uh, and we won't be, you know, in the same way that they, they could have been back then. And I think all that is true, but the thing I took issue with in my own, in the things that I was saying is that that means that we shouldn't, that we can always be around, uh, like sinning people or unrepentantly sinning people. And I want to correct that because as I thought more about it, I don't think that's actually true. And I don't think it's actually true because Paul and, and John, especially in the New Testament, I think, developed this into what we now call the idea of excommunication, that there are circumstances in which someone needs to be ejected and barred from, mm-hmm. from a Christian fellowship. Now, in the New Testament examples, those are always people who are also believers. Yes, that's which the is, distinction. Which is a big difference, you know. So it's not people out in the world. And Paul says that we can't judge those out in the world because they don't know what they're doing. Mm-hmm. It's rather people who are believers who are in, you know, unrepentant, egregious sin. You think about the, the example in Corinthians, this young man who was sleeping with his own mother-in-law and and it seems flagrantly so, like not trying to hide what, what he was doing. And Paul's like, all right, kick him out. Not forever. It seems like in Second Corinthians, he's referring to the same situation and, and welcoming that person back in. But like the Apostle John, I think it's John that says, "Don't even eat with such a, a like a dissent, a dissensive, a uh, a conflict generating person mm-hmm. who wants to split the church, who is insisting on having their own way." You know, so I think that there are situations where a believer can be corrupted and you know and and when we get there we we can maybe think about theologically how that kind of works out but just under the influence of their own selfishness that becomes a danger to the fellowship and i think also we can apply that to situations where if somebody is abusive or is taking advantage of like so like if we found out that somebody at calvary was like one like trying to like sleep with you know, a bunch of other people and like taking advantage of other people like that person should not come to church here anymore. Right. <laughs> or at least for a long time and maybe not ever. I think we're right to say that, that that was a distinctive of Jesus' ministry, that he broke those, he transgressed those barriers in a way that rightfully made the Pharisees and the Sadducees bristle. But the difference is that Jesus is himself the fountainhead of life and cleanness in a human form. And so he can interact, you know, and we as his people, I think, can too. But just, you know, we again, we take we need to take the the uh, teaching of the apostles into account that there are situations in which not unbelieving people actually, but that believers who have violated the covenant, believers who are in unrepentant sin and rebellion, they do need to be excluded uh, mm-hmm. from the fellowship, hopefully only for a season. And also potentially 
to a different church. In the Old Testament, it was both those outside of the covenant yeah. family and those and inside those of those yeah. of the covenant family yeah. that were affected by this. And so the the God's people were to stay away from mm-hmm. uh, the corruption of unclean uncleanness and sin, whether it was inside or outside of yeah. the family. Yeah. The change in the New Testament is that we are to take very seriously that corruption from inside the family. Mm-hmm. Not that we're not supposed to take it seriously when, when sin is outside of the, right. the Christian faith, but that is not a, a cause to avoid. <laughs> but it's already on the outside. Right. <laughs> yeah. Well, there's a tension here as a, as a pastor um, of, because when we preach and teach so often, rightly, we emphasize the grace of God that right. those who are listening and hearing our sermons have inevitably made mistakes, are sinners themselves, and Yahweh's forgiveness is given to them, right? He is not turned away from them. Right. He is not. <clears throat> and yet we see in the New Testament, there is this very clear set of um, instructions about what to do with unrepentant sin. Mm-hmm. And it, it is it is a tension that pastors have to, have to walk. And it's a struggle. Um, I think that it's not great to go completely one way or the other. Like, hey, everybody, everything you do is fine because Yahweh forgives. <laughs> right. Um, at the same time, the avoidance of um, high-handed... <laughs> Tyrannical nitpicking. Yeah. Is, is also <laughs> has to be done. And in as a youth pastor, I erred so often on the side of the, the grace piece of it because... Mm-hmm. The most, even though young people were caught up in behaviors that were not good, that the Apostle Paul might have included in the list of like mm-hmm. reasons to disfellowship for a time, um, the most common issue and and what felt more urgent was the the frequency that people would come and say, "I'm bad to the core, and there's no way God could love me because I've done bad things." Right. And so we emphasize the grace and the acceptance of of the Lord. Because that person, we don't want to hurt themselves. Mm-hmm. And that's the struggle from the pulpit is yeah. it's you're, you've got a wide range of people sitting in the pews and it's you can't speak to everybody all the time. We do have some questions, Pastor Ben. The first one we've received from a couple of sources. Um, mm-hmm. And so the first one actually specifically asked us not to feel the need to talk about it on the podcast, but we've now received the same question again from another source. So we are going to talk about it. In speaking about clean and unclean, we've said that unclean things cannot be in the presence of Yahweh, Mm. right? And yet we see in the beginning of Job Mm -hmm. that Satan Mm -hmm. himself Mm -hmm. is able Mm -hmm. to come into the presence of Yahweh. Mm -hmm. How, I mean, it seems as though it's obvious that Satan would be considered unclean. Mm -hmm. Um, So how do we square with this? That's a good one. And I've been thinking about that also. And I have several responses. Yeah, me if too. I can offer so this will be good. And, and yeah, and we can we can kind of talk our way through it. So number one, and this is sort of a meta response. <laughs> and and these sorts of conversations don't grab everybody, and that's fine. Uh, but I think as we're studying the Bibles, we're digging it in, digging into it together. And a few weeks ago at Men's Prayer Breakfast, we were talking about this, that one of the sort of unexpected joys of this of this season of reading the whole Bible as a church is that there's sort of a buzz about, because we're all reading, or most of us are reading the same things at the same time, and so we're encountering the same puzzles at the same time. Things are hitting different of us differently, and it's like, huh, that's how you read that, and then... And I think that there is, there's just a lot of good in that mm-hmm. and in studying the scriptures together and that that's what we're doing, you know, right now is that this person, a couple people now have noticed the same thing and, and are, it's a good challenge, I think, for us as well. And, I, you know, we've tried to say this almost every episode that Clayton and I don't know everything and 
never sit and think that we know everything. (laughs) (laughs) Right. And of course, the challenge of that is, you know, how do you say things or do a podcast like this and 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 know that you're going to be wrong a lot (laughs) (laughs) so okay so that's that's the meta answer just this is fun and i'm glad it's happening and and i think it's part of god's intention for us as god as his people to be to be meditating and and eating chewing the word together second answer i wouldn't say that that unclean things can't be in the presence of god it's just that god's presence destroys or transforms unclean things um, and so unclean things cannot stay in God's presence as unclean, unclean. things. Does that mm-hmm. make sense? And so, and that's what we see in the Old Testament, you know, is that uh, Nadab and Abihu bring strange fire, whatever that means, uncleanness into the Holy of Holies. They're still in there after they die. They've just been destroyed. <laughs> <laughs> or like later in the Levite rebellion in Numbers, when the fire comes out and incinerates a bunch of people, their censers, the incense mm-hmm. burners, are still there, and now they're holy. <laughs> like the Levites are told, go collect those things because now we have to use them in the temple because they've basically been irradiated, you know, with God's power of life. Uh, so they can't, you know, the people can't take them and use them for a profane reason. Now that doesn't that does not untie the knot of how Satan could be in God's presence, but I think that's just an important distinction that it's not. We're not saying that like it can't happen. It's just that unclean things are either destroyed or transformed. It's like a fire. And right, when you right. put things into a fire, right. they are changed or destroyed. Correct. All right. So answer number three. <laughs> <laughs> it's important to acknowledge that Job, it's not focusing on the unseen realm, really. Like it's it's focusing on the human experience of suffering how we respond to our own and and one another suffering, and then how God responds. You know that He listens to Job and and uh, uh, calls him, you know, to repentance and account at the end, and then listens to Job's prayers for his friends. And so the focus is off the unseen realm, even though Job gives us an, some insight there. But and I just say all that to say that the that how the dynamic or the mechanics of how satan could be in yahweh's presence is not anywhere near the main point of the book <laughs> that doesn't mean it's a bad question i don't want to say it's an extraneous detail cuz there are no extraneous details in scripture but that it's just not close to the i think close to the center unless and so this is something that i w- i have been learning in the last couple of weeks that i think when we talked about it you know, the assumption almost is, is that Satan is like being called in to like give a report. And it could actually be that this is like a trial scene. Mm -hmm. Like Satan is being called to the dock to be like tried for being Satan. (laughs) Yeah. Now, again, that doesn't, you know, okay, so how can he still be Satan? But I think that in that sense, then this is a destruction sort of a scene of like Yahweh is calling him to be tried and that somehow what happens to Job is, and we talked a little about this too, like there are some threads that start with Job and lead to Jesus in terms of, of uh, destroying the power of evil, breaking the power of sin through suffering. Yeah. And so I was just like really struck by that idea of like, Oh, like this isn't, this is a hostile encounter. It's not God saying like, come on in devil. My door is always open, buddy. <laughs> you know, it's like he's being summoned to to the court. 
Uh-huh. Does that make sense? Yeah, absolutely it does. Okay, there's two more answers I have. <laughs> Hit us. Go ahead. Okay, so that's just Job, the literary setting. If we kind of go up another level to like the canonical setting, I think there is some, there's there's a lot of conversation generated in scholarship about like, we could almost say like the character arc of the devil. Like it's unclear if in some of these earlier stories and references, if the devil is being viewed as like the entirely evil figure that he is in the New Testament. Mm-hmm. And then I know that some people think that, that part of what the Old Testament is actually describing is sort of a progressive corruption of the devil into evil. Right. <laughs> <laughs> you know, and, and that he was originally created, obviously, and we and we, I think we'd all agree with this, he was created by Yahweh as a, as a spiritual being of great power to serve some function in the universe. And so on this theory... The accuser or the the uh, the prosecutor function was to more or less like hold the world accountable to God's commands, mm-hmm. and that over time this spiritual being was corrupted until it's like a, this obsessive pursuit of like these people are doing wrong and they must be punished forever, which is kind of where we find the devil by the New Testament that mm-hmm. it, he's like shriveled down to this prime directive and is now no matter what like burn the world down destroy the kingdom kill jesus whatever it takes to hold people you know there's a lot that's intriguing to me in that i don't i'm not i'm not saying that like that is what's happening but just that there's just been a lot of discussion in that and that might help us understand why the devil is a bit more like he's not just a straight-up villain in job all right final final answer (laughs) Kind of just a theological acknowledgement of like everything in the cosmos is present to Yahweh. And I I honestly don't know like how far to take like the symbolism of Yahweh's throne room. Like, is there a space somewhere that like he's at? I, I don't know. And I'm not saying he's not, but just that that is at least a way of talking about how the universe is mm-hmm. in attendance to him. Whether that means there's, quote unquote, an actual heavenly, I don't even know how to describe it, you know, the, the, but rather that Yahweh's throne room is actually very close. Or let me put it this way, that everything and every location in the universe is equally close to Yahweh's throne, whether we know that or not, like whether we're perceiving it or not. So these moments of revelation, it's not that people are being taken someplace far away you know, when Moses sees the design on the mountain or whatever else, it's not like he's being beamed up to some distant planet. It's actually just an unveiling of what's right there. I am now done. <laughs> this has been 5,000 answers. With- I would add to it um, that I think that there's a possibility of a category error happening mm. with this question. And so not in any way to say that it's a bad question, but the... The Old Testament does not treat physical and spiritual as hard distinctions in quite the same way that we think of them as today. Mm-hmm. But there is a distinction. There is the breath of Yahweh that is breathed into some the the mud, right? And then Adam is given life. But there there's a there's a mix in humanity of human and spiritual. And then there are these spirits that that are fallen, right? But I, I mean, I think, I think I can say this in the Old Testament. Every time a thing is called unclean, it's physical, mm. um, spiritual things, as like the the spirits in Genesis six, the sons of God, 
that inhabit the the daughters of men, they don't become unclean until they get into a person, right? And we see the the term unclean spirit in the New Testament, mm-hmm. but it is always, always when a possession. demon yeah. has stepped into a human, right? Has taken hmm. on the physical. Yes. We also when when for example, Uzzah is killed um, in the the act of reaching out and, and touching the ark. We do not believe that his spirit is obliterated. You know, that's mm-hmm. not a, a, a thing that we think that the the physical life ends, right? And his, his, but the spirit is not destroyed in the way that we think of like the physical life being destroyed. So I think that the unclean thing is about the physical world and its, proximity to or openness to corruption in that not to say that spiritual things cannot be corrupted in fact the church fathers would say that spiritual things are like spiritual beings are in greater danger of corruption than physical ones Um, the corruption that satan for example experiences is much worse than any human being ever will that term unclean is attached to physical things i think i was in the middle of disagreeing with you very strongly until i realized that i might actually agree Well, because unclean, like we said, unclean is not primarily uh, good and evil. Uh-uh. It's it's uh, death and life. And so that uh-huh. actually makes a lot of sense that, I mean, as far as we know, angelic spirits can't die. <laughs> and uh, so, but mortal bodies can. Yeah, we did receive another question via email. Um, it reads this way. Pastors, we see in our readings that as the people, um, God's chosen people, rebel against God, that his fierce anger breaks out against them with very dire results. Since God is the same yesterday and forever, uh, what can the church, God's chosen people, expect when we rebel? The church today, in my opinion, is in rebellion. It accepts homosexuality, abortion, allows men to take a man to take his neighbor's wife, and women to steal other women's husbands, and on and on, all the time knowing Jesus is called a wholesome living. Paul says judgment will start with a house of faith. What can we expect? God is love, which is true, but he is also just. Can we expect to feel his wrath also? So it is true that God is the same yesterday, today, and forever, but the covenants are not. And so I think my first response would be to say that the covenant that the people of Israel were experiencing is not the covenant that we're under. I mean, I think that the most basic answer to this question is, yes, absolutely, we can expect the wrath of God to fall upon the church. And I think that we see that in many ways throughout church history. You know, I think we see that even in the last couple of years, and I want to be cautious because I'm not, you know, I'm not trying to say anything like authoritatively, (laughs) you know, I'm not trying to claim that I know, you know, what God is doing in, in specific situations. But it's like, is it always bad when a church closes? No, I don't think so. Sometimes, yeah, I mean, they close for stupid reasons or or it's a work of the enemy, or, or whatever, but often, probably not. I think that is actually the wrath of God. You know, in Revelation uses the phrase, like, removing their lampstand. I also think that God's wrath is not final. And what I mean by that is that it serves a function beyond destruction. Mm-hmm. So, like, earlier when we were talking about unclean things being in God's presence, you know, I said they either get destroyed or transformed. So it's like, all right, so there's sin in a church. There is no church on this planet that does not have sin, you know, mixed into its individual and corporate uh, situation. And so I think in some ways, yeah, we could say every church faces 
God's wrath in terms of opposition towards sin. And for some churches, that destroys them, and they're judged, and they're they're broken. Fair enough. That's God's righteous judgment. But other churches face these challenges, and they, I don't want to say they succeed, because it's not like God is like a test or something, but, but sort of. Like, mm-hmm. he places these things, and they become opportunities for the churches to grow and to repent and to return to faithfulness, you know, to be renewed. Having grown up in this church, I think that we can see certainly God's provision, his care and concern for Calvary. I think we can also see his wrath in opposition to to sin that has, that has uh, indwelled mm-hmm. here. And that's not to say that like, but now we're sin free. Mm-hmm. No, <laughs> you know, but I think that that quite frankly, like thinking about this season of renewal that we're in, why do we feel like we need renewed friendship? There's quite a bit of sin in the air about sticking to the people we know and not reaching out to strangers or or uh, people that aren't like us. Why are we not reading our Bibles? Why is only 75% of our congregation showing up each Sunday? Like, there's certainly some sinful aspects here that the Lord is not happy with and is going to oppose. That doesn't mean that Calvary's about to close, you know, or have fire rain down upon it. But I think that if we, it's it's kind of on us to accept it as discipline and sort of move forward in that, you know. And so I think as we've been studying the story of Chronicles and the story of Josiah, that he finds out that Judah is under God's judgment really is doomed. I mean, that's kind of the, the way it's portrayed in First Chronic or Second Chronicles thirty six. But he doesn't he doesn't just lay down and wait for the fire. <laughs> right. Like he renews his people. He leads a a renewal and he smashes idols and he teaches the Bible and you know what I mean? So it's like we don't know. None of us know. No church knows, you know, how a story is gonna go, but it's like we need to try and stay faithful as much as we're able when sin is revealed, repent of that and keep going until the end you know mm-hmm. which again we, we you know we we don't know and i think it's wrong to like declare that like i feel like we like my personal opinion as a pastor is i'm not gonna give up until like it's actually over <laughs> right <laughs> <laughs> like i will roll out the guns until she's under the water <laughs> a couple of things that i think are important to say or stress here one of the issues we have when we think about yahweh's wrath is our closest analogy is human anger. Mm-hmm. And they are not the same thing. Mm-hmm. Um, it is easy for us to attempt to justify human anger because we see Yahweh's wrath in the Bible. And we think that when we feel really, really right, we're doing the same thing Yahweh does. They are not the same thing. We can talk about that more if someone has a lot of questions. The other thing about this is we do see more instances of obvious wrath in the Old Testament, but there's a couple of reasons for that. One might be that wrath is less a common response in the New Covenant. Another is just the timetable. So the Old Testament covers a long time. And the moments when God breaks out in wrath are big moments. And Mm -hmm. the, the book of Numbers, for example, covers about 40 years. That is about the amount of time from the beginning of Jesus's ministry all the way through the book of Acts. So like Mm -hmm. all the narratives in the New Testament Mm -hmm. cover about the same period of time as the book of Numbers. And we have moments of wrath. We have Ananias and Sapphira. Um, there's that that passage in 1 Corinthians where Paul says, you guys are 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 not doing communion with the hearts you're mm-hmm. supposed to. And, and so, so some of some you have, have died, died because yeah. of it. Like that, it doesn't, it doesn't attribute that to wrath, but there, that seems to be there. And then also in Hebrews, we find that that it is a dreadful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. That he 
that he disciplines those he loves. There's something there. Okay. Some of that is fruit, right? So, so when you do the, the, the saying that's common today is play stupid games, win stupid prizes, <laughs> right? You, you, when you, the consequences of your own actions come back upon you, um, is that part of what the wrath of God is? I don't usually think so, but it can, I think it can have that effect, right? It sure. can have that redeeming effect of, of causing a person to repent. But I will say that until things are final, meaning until bridges have been crossed that require a person to no longer be redeemable, which seems to be what's happening with Ananias and Sapphira, mm-hmm. seems to be what's happening with Judas Iscariot, yeah. um, that his wrath is redemptive until it can no longer be. So if God's holy presence is like a fire that either transforms or destroys whatever it touches, what I think the wrath of God does, at least as, we, as I read and I get to know the Lord as he's described to me in, in the Gospels, is it, it, it leans towards transformation as much as it can until it can't. A summary of next week's readings, which cover Deuteronomy chapter 1, through 25, but we're going to go ahead and throw in chapter 26 today because that does seem to be a major section end in the book of Deuteronomy. Okay. Yahweh watches over the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked leads to destruction. This verse from the end of Psalm 1 describes a major theme in the Christian faith. There are two paths. On one hand is a path of faith, love, and obedience that leads to the life Yahweh promises us, while the other path leads to destruction of self, others, and the beautiful creation that we inhabit. This is the central theme in Deuteronomy, with nearly every section making that choice clear in one way or another. Choose Yahweh or choose death and its henchmen. Deuteronomy is the last book of the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible that we believe were written by Moses. And it is a deeply meaningful book because it contains the final words of Moses to the people he was called to lead all the way back at the burning bush. His words are sometimes stern, sometimes tender, but always full of the urgent call to choose Yahweh. And so Deuteronomy invites us to enter a living world of care, concern, and urgency that only comes when the dying impart their final words to the last generation. Now, it may be that your impression of Deuteronomy is that it is full of dry, obscure, strange, and perhaps useless laws that do not affect Christians today. Please hear me. If that is your opinion, you have missed something vital. Deuteronomy is a life-giving book. It is Jesus' favorite book of the Pentateuch to quote. Aside from perhaps the Psalms, it is the most important book in the Old Testament to help understand the rest of the Old Testament. If the Old Testament has seemed to you to be an obscure volume whose meaning is hopelessly locked away, then Deuteronomy is the key. And of course, if you're a lifelong, or if you're lifelong, if you're a longtime listener to the podcast, <laughs> you know that Deuteronomy is also the place where Pastor Ben wants to build a cottage and mm. sell pumpkin bread. Mm-hmm. And so, Deuteronomy. The book of Deuteronomy is almost entirely made up of three sermons from Moses, the first two of which we are discussing today because they comprise next week's readings. And Deuteronomy is about a marriage of sorts, a coming together of a unique God with his unique people and their unique relationship defined as a covenant. This covenant, based not on fear but love, provided the highest privileges in terms of covenant blessings and required specific responsibilities. A holy life lived with kindness towards the needy, poor, orphan, widow, Levite, and stranger, and the expectation of parents to teach their children. 
These are the subject of Moses' sermons. The first sermon for Moses takes up most of chapters 1 through 4. In it, Moses recounts the story of the Israelites thus far, from the time they left Mount Sinai to now. And through the telling of this history, Moses prepares us for several important themes that are coming in his next, much longer sermon. But they basically boil down to this. Be very, very, very careful to obey Yahweh and to turn away from idolatry. The second sermon covers from the end of chapter 4 through to chapter 26, and it is masterful. It should not surprise us that Moses was an excellent preacher. He begins his sermon by introducing and restating the Ten Commandments, much like a preacher today reads the Bible verse they intend to expound on. But in our hurry to get to read the Ten Commandments and the interpretations that come after, we must not miss something monumentally significant that happens just beforehand. Moses is giving this sermon 40 years after the giving of the law at Mount Sinai. And now the generation that received that law have all died in the wilderness. And yet he says over and over again throughout this, this sermon that it was in fact this generation that he is speaking to that stood in the shadow of that great mountain and heard Yahweh speak. This concept of remembering is brought forth powerfully here and recurs over and over again. The Israelites are to see themselves as the generation that all of those stories in Exodus happened to. And yet they are to teach their children as though their children are not part of that generation. And so the Israelites are called to live in such a way that continually recalls, remembers the actions and commands of Yahweh with regard to his people. Then Moses remembers the Ten Commandments and he sermonizes. Aside from the theme of remembering, there are a few others that I want to encourage you to look for throughout this message. Again, one of those themes is remembering. But three other themes that I want you to, to find or, or pay attention to as you read Deuteronomy. The most difficult one for us to talk about today, and I'm sure we will talk quite a bit about it, is the ban or the call of Yahweh's people to give things over to Yahweh or to completely destroy everything belonging to the people who currently occupy the promised land. I won't say much more here because I'm certain we're going to talk about it in a moment, but I will say that it is okay if you have a hard time reading those passages. I do believe that we're supposed to have a hard time reading those passages. Next, another theme is the command for Yahweh's people to love him. It is given again and again through Deuteronomy. This may actually be the first time in the Bible that the command to love Yahweh is given. But if it's not the first time, still the amount of emphasis on it is a little, frankly, shocking at this point in the Pentateuch. The call to love Yahweh is said again and again and again. And I think that's important for us to listen to, pay attention to, and contemplate. And finally, Moses' favorite buzzwords are throughout this sermon. And we should listen to them, and we should, I think, think on them. Love Yahweh, of course, fear him, obey him, serve him, and keep or observe his commands are the main points Moses hammers again and again in this sermon. His people are told again and again that if they do those things, they will receive blessings. And if they do not, then they will receive the other thing. This is, again, the choice between life and death. And we're told throughout the book that this choice between life and death isn't just in the big choices that we might associate with our religious convictions today. Idolatry is certainly a major concern for Moses, but so is diet and marriage and the body and money 
and justice and freedom in the poor and the marginalized and the animals. In short, every single part of the life of Yahweh's people contains this choice. Choose Yahweh in life or rebel and choose death. Despite Deuteronomy's theological depth, if we were to boil down its message into one statement, it is simple. It's this. Love Yahweh and obey him. The call to love God is central to Deuteronomy and the Old Testament. A reader of the New Testament or a churchgoer might be under the impression that that idea is new in Jesus, but it is not. Jesus tells us to love God because Jesus has a profound understanding of Deuteronomy. You know, I, I, I like to call the book of Deuteronomy the hidden gem of the Old Testament because I think it is one of the most, and you, you acknowledge this there at the end of your summary, one of the most like formatively determinative books for the rest of the Old Testament. Oh, yeah. And then also into the New. Like it's quoted constantly in Jesus' temptations with the devil, uh-huh. he quotes from Deuteronomy, from some of these chapters that we're reading today. Yeah. Well, and even when it's not quoted, I one of the things that I, I looked at, and I, I thought about including something about this in the in the summary, but we've I don't know if we've said it in this podcast, but you and I have both called the Bible a hyperlinked book. Mm. The number of times in the Old Testament something from Deuteronomy just like happens, and it doesn't say... Right. Go back and read Deuteronomy chapter 12, verse 3. Right. You're just expected to know what's happening. But I I mean, dozens and dozens and dozens of times things talked about in Deuteronomy happen mm-hmm. exactly as they were told in Deuteronomy. So the first section, and there was one part that I wanted to ask Ooh. a little bit more about because it's one of my little pet things. Okay. And so in chapter 2... Starting in, let's see here, verse like 16 or 17, he's talking about that that Moses is making clear that the Israelites get to take the land that was given to them by Yahweh and not anybody else's land. Like Israel's not supposed to be a, a territory gobbling empire. But in the midst of saying this, he describes these conflicts that these other people groups had with beings. <laughs> I knew we were going to talk about giants. That are called the Rephaim, <laughs> which I believe is the dreadful ones. Mm-hmm. Or as the Ammonites call them, the Zamzumim. Or as the, es- the Esau people call them, the Avim. And so what's really interesting to me about this is that whatever historical reality is behind Moses' words here, and we can consider that, it wasn't just Israel that was telling stories about conquering their land from whatever these people were, but that all of their regional neighbors also fought off, again, whatever these people were and had their own names for them. It just was kind of a striking, like, huh, Like, Israel's story is part of a bigger story that Yahweh is orchestrating in the history of several of these nations. And I just wondered if you had any insight or or further context about that. The Bible begins with these three weird stories or strange stories, right? That kind of high points in the first 11 chapters of Genesis. We get the fall in the garden. And then we get the, the story just before the flood of these 
sons of God making children with daughters of, of men. And then we get, after that, we get the Tower of Babel. But it's this middle story that we don't really know what to do with a lot of the time. And there's been a difficulty for the church throughout its history and understanding what in the It's four verses mm-hmm. that Moses writes in the book of Genesis about the sons of God having children with the daughters of men. And some people have thought what this is, is corrupt, powerful men, mm-hmm. um, you, like wielding their power in a corrupt fashion. And the reason that we think that today, that's a common, that's a common idea today, is because we don't like fantastic things in our Bible, which is weird because it is the story of Yahweh and the things that he has done and is doing. But sometimes when a story feels a little too mythological for us, mm-hmm. we feel the need to explain it away. I think that's a mistake. I think what's happening in Genesis 6 is we see the fallen spiritual beings making a play to take over or break into Yahweh's good creation. Now, why am I talking about Genesis 6 if we're talking about Deuteronomy 2? Well, the reason is because while these people were wiped out by the plague, or by the plague, by the flood, the idea I think that we get from Deuteronomy and from other places in the Old Testament is that that attempt didn't end. Mm -hmm. And so we get this, these people that are like part giant Mm -hmm. and they're connected to the Nephilim, which is the word that's used in Genesis 6. Mm -hmm. And it seems like these are the results of fallen spiritual beings trying to co-opt part of God's good creation. We can talk more about that another time. But what I what I want to say here is it seems like the people inhabiting the promised land are much or mostly or entirely the descendants or people that have come from unions like what we saw happening in Genesis 6. And so that's a, it's, it, these people seem to have wanted the promised land. Why? Well, if they are um, descendants of, of spiritual beings trying to thwart God's plan, wanting to occupy and prevent the people of Israel from getting to the place that Yahweh has promised mm-hmm. them seems like a, Eden. a yeah. good idea. If it's the Garden of Eden, they want it and they don't want, they don't want Yahweh's people to have it. It's too easy to say that explains the ban, although it does seem linked to it. The mm-hmm. only people that are entire, I think this is right. I believe you're That right. are entirely yeah. turned over to the ban, entirely supposed to be destroyed in every single way, are the people that are associated with these people groups described here in Deuteronomy 2 that are occupying the promised land. Everyone else, there's actually specifically different rules. Moses even says at one point, listen, if when you go to war with other people, right. you don't have to do to them right. what you're doing to these people that are in the promised land. There's a very specific contagion mm-hmm. that Yahweh seems determined to eliminate. Yeah. Like in a flood-like way. In a flood-like way. Yeah. Like there's cancers, flood language in mm-hmm. in these chapters in Deuteronomy. It to a modern reader, a good analogy would be these are cancer cells. Mm-hmm. And the only way to get rid of them is a very violent practice that is harmful and awful and distasteful. And yet, that does seem to be what Yahweh is saying to do. Sure. That's what's happening here in Deuteronomy Well, because 2. I think that, I mean, we're, we're going to reach Joshua 
yes. in two weeks and, and, you know, all of these things I think are going to become very significant. And yeah, I don't think it, it does not solve the difficulties of these stories, but I think that it, it is, it's, it's like, it's the difference between looking at something in two dimensions, looking at it in three dimensions. Like you're, it's not that you're not seeing it. You're just not seeing the whole picture and you can't interact with it in the whole way if we just totally ignore whatever is happening with these people called the dread ones the Rephaim. like i think again this is just the, one of those moments where we need to take a breath and remind ourselves that if if there had been cameras there what would they have seen would they have seen 20 foot tall demon people perhaps would they have just seen slightly taller people <laughs> Well, we have a, we have another picture in, with David fighting Goliath. Right, right, right. And that's we don't have a problem. Well, it's and so Goliath was people- tall, but Goliath was not fantastically tall. No. He- and so you know, it's like okay, so how tall was the average Israelite? Five foot two? You know, I don't know, but they were short. Mm-hmm. Most ancient people were short. It's so like us six foot tall people would have been noticeably taller than everybody yes. else. If you're seven feet tall, you would have been like fantastically tall you know so it's like are we really talking about a mythological thing you know in the way of like well we know that things like that don't exist in the world it's like well i mean yes and no right i mean even think about the seraphim from last week like if a camera had been there what would it have seen well it might have just seen what looks like snakes but that doesn't mean that they're not sent by a spiritual power which is what the story is telling us that yahweh sent them we have to understand and you said this there is something specific about these people that not just Israel and that's why I wanted to point this out in Deuteronomy too but that Esau's people the Moabite people the Ammonite people everybody recognized that there was some issue with these people mm-hmm. whether they whether it's an ancient case of genocide and they were like well we have to destroy them so we're going to say that they're half demon spawn so it's convenient more convenient for us or that they were particularly wicked somehow in their practices, well, I mean, what rampant the spies human sacrifice, they they or the I don't know, you know, but just that there was something that was recognizable, broadly recognizable. So it's not even just, oh, Israel has a problem with these people. It's like, no, like everybody has had to clear these people out. And even back to Genesis 15, the alliance of kings goes and fights giants. Yes. In Genesis 15. Yes, it does. <laughs> Which again is just one that's like, huh? Yeah, something, something, something's, uh, something's going on. And I think as we move forward to Joshua, I think helps that there are canonical limits within the Bible telling us that God is not giving rules about warfare generally to anyone, even the Israelites. Like the ban was not to be a universally no. applied policy. It was for these this group of people. And again, that doesn't solve all the difficulties, but I think that is a dimension here that that we just need to recover and that we need to keep in mind as we move forward. Uh, so Deuteronomy chapter 12 Ooh. indicates that there's going to be like a special place that Yahweh is going to choose for his presence. And he uses the phrase a couple of times, like the place where I put my name or the place where my name comes yeah. to dwell. I just wanted you to give us some more context on, like, what does that mean? Like, why is he saying that rather than where I come to dwell? It does seem like what he's talking about will eventually be the setting up of the tabernacle. And then later on, you know, of course, there we'll, we'll have the temple. But he doesn't say where I'm going to dwell. He, he refers to his name being present. And so we have these stories in numbers um, and we get them in 
um, throughout of, of interactions with Yahweh in the tabernacle. But it is not as though he in his fullness is dwelling there. Um, his, when he refers to his name being present, I think what he's talking about, at least in part, is that there is something of him in there, but it is not the fullness of him because the fullness of him is not something that can be contained inside of that tent. There will be a tabernacle that contains the fullness of Yahweh, but that will be the Lord. Jesus. Yes. In Deuteronomy 14, he gives some some laws about the festivals and, and celebrating yeah. the Lord's goodness in Jerusalem. He says, if you live really far from, well, they don't know it's Jerusalem yet, but right. wherever he places <laughs> my, his name, uh, says in verse 26, and you may give the silver for whatever your appetite craves, cattle and sheep and wine and strong drink, and whatever your appetite might prompt you to ask, and you shall eat it there before the Lord your God, and you shall rejoice, you and your household. So I was just wondering there when it says wine and strong drink, was it referring to beer or liquor? And which one do you enjoy most in the Lord's presence? <laughs> wine or other fermented drink or anything you wish. I do think that if we are going to attempt to answer this question in any real sort of way, um, the, the first thing we need to say is that it is a tough comparison to put modern alcoholic beverages up against ancient alcoholic beverages. If you were to fill your beer with 50% water beyond what it already is, then you might have something approximating ancient beer as far as the, the strength of it goes. It is too easy to say they didn't get drunk because they absolutely did get drunk. In fact, that's referred to in Jesus's miracle in Cana with the, uh, the wedding, that everybody's too drunk to notice the good wine, right? They expect drunkenness to be a part of these festivals. So it does seem like part of the celebration of Yahweh's people is supposed to incorporate this, uh, these this alcoholic beverages. Um, I do not drink the things that they drank, so I don't know if I could say which ones would have been my favorite. <laughs> and now you know where my cottage in Deuteronomy <laughs> would be <laughs> I was struck as I was reading through some of these laws, and I mean, we've talked a lot about the laws and uh -huh. different ways of reading the law, and uh, chapter 21 uh, which I'm, I'm going to want you to talk a little bit more to us about verses 10 through uh, 14. But as I was continuing to read, I came across the, with the rebellious son law that, you know, <laughs> so if you can't, if you cannot get through to your son, he's wayward and rebellious. You take him to the elders of the town and you say, this son of ours is wayward and rebellious. He does not heed our voice, is a glutton and a drunk. And that rang a bell in my mind because that is what the Pharisees call Jesus, oh. a glutton and a drunkard. Oh! And then it was like all of a sudden it like unfolded in my mind of like, oh what my they were gosh, doing. he's the rebellious son. And then the next set of verses is about the man hanged on the tree and how that's a cursed person. And Paul talks about that in Galatians. And then I looked back at the, uh, you know, should a man have two wives and the firstborn is from the hated wife, but he has to, you know, and just thinking about how the firstborn of Israel rejected their Messiah, but Jesus told the Syrophoenician woman that he'd come for the children of Israel. And I, it, it was just kind of a neat moment of like, holy crap. <laughs> 
Well, Jesus is all over Deuteronomy. In and a lot of gave ways. some context to that accusation of theirs in the Gospels for calling him a glutton and a drunkard. Well, it like, seems like oh, what they were setting up. They wanted to have him killed for being a glutton and a well, drunkard. Well, we're not surprised by that, right? Yeah. That is no, no, I just didn't. I just had never seen that connection before. And so I, was I just, didn't make it. I Good don't have you. a whole lot else to say just besides like, oh, that's cool. That is cool. Um, <clears throat> Thank I, God that Jesus was killed. <laughs> The only son who was not rebellious for all of us rebellious sons. Yes. This is not really a question. It's just another just kind of a comment that I want to point out since we're here. So chapter 22 gives us some more laws, you know, and, and part of the fun of the law is that some of them, like, we read it and like, yeah, okay, you know, uh-huh. build a parpet around your house. I mean, I'm not going to do that, but like make your house a safe place for people. You know, yeah, that makes sense. If your steps are rotten, you should replace them like that. That makes sense. But then we get this weird thing about if a husband decides that he doesn't like his wife, but then the, <laughs> the mom and dad can bring a presumably a bloody bedsheet to uh, prove her virginity. <laughs> and I would just like yeah. to I would just like to say that one of the one of the uh, people in, at Calvary told me that they had thought about having like a a painting made for oh, me no. of my cottage and doing <laughs> but that off to the side. <laughs> There would be this old man and woman carrying a bloody bed sheet towards the front of the painting. Uh huh. I would hang that in my house. I'm not afraid of the Bible. I'm not afraid of the Bible, Clayton. And we talked about this in the Wednesday small group a few weeks ago and just like trying to puzzle through like what. What's going on? What are we to make of this? And, you know, we've talked a few times about how the laws and I still haven't come up with a good word, but like. There is more of parables in them than I think we we often recognize or appreciate that just because, you know, so like, did anyone ever do this? I don't know. And I'm not saying they didn't. But like, what is the effect on the community of having this law? You know, like, would anyone have ever done this? What would have stopped a mother and father from faking it? Like, how would you know what, you know, and just like thinking through the actual like, enactment of this sure and then as we were reading this chapter somebody in the group pointed out i think it's verse 10 into chapter 22 that says you shall not plow with an ox and a donkey together he made the point that why would anyone ever do that like it'd be very hard to yoke an oxen and a donkey together it wouldn't be even like you would be setting yourself up for failure and why would you ever do that it's like all right and then as we all kind of sat there, it's like, I wonder if that's the key to understanding this, that a lot of these laws are referring to, like, why would you live your life with integrity? Why would you set yourself up for failure? Why would you ever, you know, if you know your wife is is virtuous, why would you ever accuse her of not being virtuous? If you know that there's some problem with your house that could endanger people, why would you not take care of it? You know, and just this idea of like, that an ancient farming person would read, you shall not plow with an ox and a donkey together. And they go, well, of course not. Why would we ever do that? And then Deuteronomy responds, yeah. And why would you ever do any of the rest of this? So I think it was just, it was a recent lived example, I think, of how the law is supposed to function for Christians, that we read it, we receive it, we puzzle over it, and learn wisdom from it you know that it's like none of us are ever going to plow with oxes and donkeys none of us are ever going to be pulling bloody bed sheets out of the closet that's just not happening um and so what are some of the the principles that these things are speaking to that we can become wise from that we can learn wisdom from so the reason you would plow with an ox and a donkey yoke together is you only have one ox but you need something else there for the the yoke to work and you are going to torture the donkey 
by forcing it to carry this load. Such a thing would be terribly cruel. This is Yahweh instilling mercy and kindness into his people. One of the things that strikes me about the laws in Deuteronomy, and they may not appear this way on a first read, is there's a heavy emphasis on God's people not being harmful, cruel, destructive, or violent to those that they are actually supposed to be protectors of. Over and over and over again. I mean, there are a lot of laws about how to treat your animals in Deuteronomy. Mm-hmm. Um, that, I mean, a lot of them. And that's just a little odd. You know, we Americans, we think a lot about our pets, and so it may not strike all of us as odd, but the the it's, I mean, there's a whole lot going on in the world at this time, and they take a lot of space talking about the importance of, of dealing with animals. Something else in Deuteronomy that gets a lot of space is the interactions of, of men and women together. In the ancient world, outside of Israel, there are all kinds of terrible stories about how women were treated in the context of marriage as property. The laws that are given here, we've talked about this with the numbers law, um, about the, the potion that the woman had to drink, that are protecting women from the whims of their husbands being cruel to them. And it is unparalleled in the ancient world. At this time, in the 8th century or 7th century BC, you don't have this kind of, of um, and even older than that, we're, we're older than that. I'm sorry, I just mixed Chronicles and Deuteronomy. The, past the first millennia BC, you do not have these kinds of protection for women. The husband might want to upgrade. And no, actually, the, the mother and father of the bride can say, absolutely not. Here's proof. I'm saying, as I say that these are about protecting women, a person rightly might respond with, but wait a second. Um, at one point, a rapist has to marry his bride. Or there's other places where a, a man is accusing his bride of something, it's proved wrong, and now he's not allowed to divorce her. Where's the woman being able to divorce her husband? You're right. Like, these are not the laws we would like to see. But to be in a state where you are no longer a virgin and unmarried in the ancient world was a very, very bad place to be for a woman. Hopefully, your father's family would be good to you, take you back, um, and eventually, and other family members would take care of you. But they do not have to, and they may not. So in the law now is protection for the woman to make sure that she is cared for. Her life is protected. And I think that that is beautiful. Moses cares enough about it that he he covers several circumstances to make sure that women cannot just be exploited and mistreated. Um, He does the same thing when he's talking about foreigners. He does the same thing when he's talking about animals. So for us, we learn wisdom to live life with integrity and kindness. It's incredible. I I am moved by Moses' heart for the the marginalized here. Over and over again, we see this this care for the marginalized. There is a a singular un-Americanness to a lot of the approach to dealing with the poor um, or the disenfranchised in Deuteronomy. Um, people are not supposed to accumulate all the profit or food that they can. They're supposed to leave things very intentionally to care for those in need. Um, and I think that we as Americans can take some very important points about Yahweh's heart for the people around us from the laws in Deuteronomy. This has been Ben and Clayton Eat the Bible. Stay hungry, my friends. Ben and Clayton Eat the Bible is a podcast ministry of Calvary Community Church. All contents are under copyright. Our theme music is by Alex Productions. Any thoughts and opinions are solely mine and Clayton's. That is true. In Sunnyland, it's the same thing. (laughs) Only it's not like soap. (laughs) In Sunnyland, the shampoo actually comes out of the water main. Only it's gross and it's limey. (laughs) Oh, Sunnyland.